This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Coming up in just a bit, the Chicago Tribune's Chris Jones fills us in on how COVID-19 has disturbed the economic ecosystem that's based around the theater scene. The cityscape not only sort of changed in the face of the virus, I think, but it's proved to be a remarkably long period of change, maybe systemic change. But first, Illinois just gave the green light to bring the state's two million students back into the classroom this fall. But will it be safe? Schools have been closed since mid-March due to COVID-19, but the American Academy of Pediatrics is pushing for schools across the country to reopen despite the risks. Dr. Shelley Vaziri-Flace is a pediatrician based in Naperville and a spokeswoman for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Doctor, thanks for coming on Reset. Thank you so much for having me. So, So why is your organization recommending that schools reopen in the next few months? It's interesting because we live in an era of headlines and the one-liner, and there's definitely more context to this. And it was the result of a risk-benefit analysis, specifically when it comes to kids. Whether we're talking about urban settings, suburban settings, rural settings, there's going to be a diverse range of situations that will keep evolving as well. So it was important for the Academy to put this out, say, the goal, the primary goal is... um, operate from a standpoint of kids should physically be present in school, and then we're going to tweak from there. Well, let's ask, I, I, I worry about that, and I don't worry about that. I mean, it might be the right way to say it, but the, the idea that you'll oh, hear sure. public experts <laughs> say, public health experts uh, you know, across the country, warning about a second wave coming up, uh, what can happen in the fall, is it smart to, to, to put kids back into school? What the governor released was just guidelines to the school districts who could make the determination on their own. So when, when you're talking about guidelines from the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, essentially talking about getting kids in school and how important it is to get them back in school, it does feel like almost like a contradiction to some of the ways the other public experts are going. So how do you, how do you talk, talk, right. talk us through that? And certainly as a society, we can look at restaurants reopening, bars reopening, and then schools reopening. Part of why we can say this is when you look at a risk-benefit analysis, kids under 10 especially, but kids in general have been relatively spared the serious side effects of this illness. We're seeing that kids are more likely to be asymptomatic. Kids are less likely to transmit the disease. So I think that it's important to talk about kid-to-kid transmission, adult-to-kid transmission, a kid-to-adult transmission, and adult-to-adult transmission. And even though it's an 11-page Academy document talking about kids returning to school, special considerations are talking about adults in terms of break rooms and gathering together and still having virtual meetings because it's really the adult contact that is most concerning when it comes to the the, the spread. Yeah. You know, you have a that uh, all the the take, takeaways and guidelines are on your site, and it's fascinating because it goes into everything that we've been talking about uh, about social distancing, 
about uh, how, how the classroom's going to look, but it also talks about things we haven't thought about. Lunchtime, recess, buses, playgrounds, the, the, the ancillary things that go along activities. with opening a school. Activities. Choir uh, and bands. Yeah. And you're blowing on instruments. Exactly. Droplets, That's right? what I mean. I, there's a lot in this that you're like, oh, we have any, we could do 20-minute breakout segments on each one of these things from, from band to recess to buses and so on. So right. there's a and lot. there's no way to eliminate risk. It's all about mitigating risk, I for see. sure. So, so when you talk about student interaction beyond the classroom, that's where you the, the schools lose a little bit of their ability to control that risk in the, in the sense that kids can do a little bit more, be more free than they could be maybe in the classroom. True. And that's why there's an emphasis on four things. First of all, being asymptomatic. It's so important for families if you have any signs of a fever. And this is going to be an issue, whether we're talking about temperature checks or if the district is going to trust that families are doing temperature checks, they have to be asymptomatic. Face coverings in an age-appropriate way, hand hygiene. I can't believe we still have to talk about proper hand washing for 20 seconds, singing the the alphabet song, but we do, apparently. And then physically distancing. I always prefer the term physically distancing to social distancing because we still want our kiddos and us to socially connect. So with those guidelines in place, I think that there's a way to do this. For example, I have high school cross-country distance runner athletes, um, my kids, and they are meeting in small groups, squad of nine or fewer. They do temperature checks when they arrive. They answer the routine questions that I think any of us who have been in a healthcare facility recently have asked. There's a way to be smart about this. And I think that if those ideals are kept in mind, we should do a better job than... I think the tendency is to be fearful. On a personal note, I can share with you that um, I'm a cancer mom. My youngest child is in remission from Hodgkin lymphoma. She's doing great, thank goodness. Great. When she was diagnosed, even during chemo, my tendency as a mom was to bubble wrap her and protect her. But I knew as a pediatrician and specifically regarding childhood cancer research, the best place for her to be was in school, having her schedule, being with her friends, doing her activities. So that was huge. Um, And we even know this as pediatricians, whether it's migraines or recovering from a concussion, return to school is huge. And so taken on a global scale, And I haven't even gotten into the inequities because we have families (laughs) with means, but we have families who don't have internet access. Even if they do, they may not be logging in. Are they benefiting from the e-learning experience? And for some kids, I mean, a lot of households are stressed right now. We know from the research that when households are stressed, kids are more likely to be abused, physically abused, sexually abused. The school is their safe haven. The adults at school who know the kiddos can identify these patterns, help with mental health issues. Yeah, it's school, There's a lot a, at school yeah, it's school as a resource, but school almost as like a community center in a way because uh, obviously it helps with the routines and habits of, of young people who are still developing. And and I wonder, too, about we, we want to put and instill some of these, these measures when you talk about physical distancing and masks and, and other things that are important to stop the spread of COVID-19. But when you're talking about a 7-year-old, you know, when right. you're talking about a third grader, right. how is it going to work <laughs> when 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 they're told they can't go into this area or they got to keep their mask on and they don't want to? I, I don't understand. And I still, you know, scratch my head on how that's going to be and I, possible. And for sure, it's going to be a work in progress. I do strongly believe that the adults set the tone, whether it's parents or caregivers or 
the teachers, if the expectation is there, kids do a great job. In our practice, for example, we have a policy two years and up. We follow the American Academy of Recommendations. You wear a mask. And I will share with you that my two, three, and four-year-olds do a great job Mm. not only wearing the mask, but not touching their face excessively. I think that's going to be one of the concerns. And I think the Academy statement did a good job of pointing out how preschool and younger kids look at the face covering and if they're touching their face too much that's actually riskier than wearing the yeah, mask yeah absolutely and maybe so and balance. maybe in a way we're projecting a little bit of, of our concerns about mask wearing <laughs> onto our our, our well, toddlers and our and our early educated uh, true, middle schoolers true. Right? right when we're talking about getting these kids back into school and you're also hearing from congressional hearings dr fauci in front of uh Congress yesterday saying it could get worse 100,000 cases a day could be the possibility this fall how how are schools going to prepare and how do you prepare when you have these guidelines in place that there's going to be an ebb and flow there has to be some flexibility to what's safe and what's not on like Absolutely. a flip of a switch yeah flexibility is the key word here and being nimble because week to week it's going to be new information testing is a huge issue we are nowhere near as a country where we should be in terms of testing. And so um, the issue has been raised. Well, what if every kid gets tested at the beginning of the school year? Great. But that's a moment in time. And part of coronavirus is that it's a moving target. A kiddo who is negative in August could turn positive in September. And so um, a friend reached out, their district is talking about pool testing and how can this be done in a cost-effective way? So in terms of isolation and trace contacts, that's going to definitely be an issue. And the bottom line is we will all be ready to pull back and go back to an e-learning format. But again, as the nation's pediatricians, our goal was start from a mindset of having kids physically in school, and then we'll work it from there. Because when you talk about, you know, our first oath as physicians is first do no harm. And for the kid population, the greater harm might actually be not being physically present in school. Yeah, right. As we think about that, too, because, you know, obviously we we have at least a moment in which uh, April and May and into June, if you're CPS, kids were all about e-learning. And so there's some data and there's some some actual real uh, real time experience that we can draw upon about how successful it was. And when we look at it, you, you you're absolutely right. There still is a big question about the digital divide in this country and, right. and how some are, are able to adapt to the situation and some are not. Right. And certainly if you're coming from a home that doesn't have the economic means, doesn't have the emotional support. A lot of kids simply weren't even showing up. Um, And I can report to you that the kids that I see in my office, again, we see birth through college. I would be hard pressed to think of a child who um, was excited to to log on. It it just was not. The report from the kids and the adults is that it just wasn't the same. Well, Dr. Shelley Vaziri Flace, uh, spokeswoman for the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, they just put out their recommendations for safety guidelines uh, for getting back in the physical school space. We're going to continue this conversation uh, throughout the summer. I find it uh, just so crucial because it's it's less about Absolutely. what the government essentially says are the guidelines. It's more about what we can do as a society to to get back on track and being full, fully well aware of the effects of this pandemic. Dr. Vaziri Flace, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
Well, we got the news this week that Broadway won't return until early December at the earliest. But will that be too late? Las Vegas heavyweight Cirque du Soleil just filed for bankruptcy protection. And more and more regional and local theaters are cutting back or even closing up shop permanently. But we do have Hamilton on film coming this Friday. Well, only if you have Disney Plus or if you're a top flight theater writer who likes to get an advanced copy, like, say, chief theater critic for the Chicago Tribune, Chris Jones. Hey, Chris. Start out with a little shade, I see. Yeah, I see. Uh, before we get into the <laughs> Hamilton, let's talk about Broadway. This decision wasn't necessarily surprising to push it back, but I know that Broadway was really hoping to get things back on track by summer or fall. Yeah, I think, you know, it is looking actually now really like the spring before Broadway is back. The problem is, you know, a fairly obvious one. They don't know how to make these theaters safe at this point, and they further don't know how to make them economically viable. Uh, With international tourism in the tank, with uh, travel bans, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, a lot of these shows are tourist-dependent. There's no sense of when tourists are coming back to New York City. And I think the the ability to sort of profitably produce theater in those big Manhattan theaters is very questionable. And so at this point, they've no choice, really, but to keep kicking the can down the road in the hope that things will improve. I mean, the lights being dark on Broadway must be such a surreal thing. But I I also wonder about those those old Manhattan theaters are so uh, ancient. And and they got to be hard to retrofit and change and and be ready for a socially distant new normal. So I would I would assume that there's there's a lot beyond just opening their doors. They have to figure out. Well, I would say that social distancing, if we've really been realistic, Justin, is impossible in those theaters. There's no way to social distance. Um, even if you sort of blocked off some seats, you've still got the ingress and egress. You've got a huge bathroom problem. You've got any number of issues in the lobbies. There's simply no way to do it. And I think a lot of the theater owners and the producers in New York have concluded that and decided that they are really looking at a post-vaccine reality, or at least a an era when, say, the therapeutics have improved to the point where a critical mass of the audience feels more comfortable with taking the risk of going inside. Yeah. And also for the all of the, the people who work on Broadway, I think about the crews and, and uh, people yeah. who keep those theaters up, but also the, the actors. I mean, they're just out of luck in this sense because there's just no, there's no industry to come back to. Well, it's, it's economically devastating, and I, I don't think it matters whether it's New York or Chicago. Uh, anyone who goes downtown, I did yesterday myself. I sat outside at the Emerald Loop in the Loop, mm-hmm. and I looked around, and it looked like 3 o'clock on a Sunday in January, and this is the week of the 4th of July. And a lot of that, of course, is because restaurants are dependent largely on uh, entertainment venues for a lot of their business. Hotels are dependent on tourism. And in many ways, we really analyze it. The reason that people go to big cities is frequently for the sort of the city culture, which restaurants and theaters are so a part of. And the moment those don't exist or go on this pause, as they say, then, you know, what is it to go downtown for if you're not working downtown especially? I remember in March when the theaters closed, I was in New York that last night, and I remember coming out and thinking, okay, well, this is going to be maybe three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. I don't think anybody thought we would be looking at a year, which is essentially what we're now looking at. I mean, it, it was so outside of the realm of at least my thinking back then that it's sort of stunning to me. Um, but we are, in fact, looking at a year 
without any of these things happening. And in Chicago, we have the same thing. We have a fall with no lyric opera. We have a fall probably with no orchestras. We have uh, uh, certainly, almost certainly, a fall with no international tourists. So it's just the cityscape not only sort of changed in the face of the virus, I think, but it's proved to be a remarkably long period of change, maybe systemic change. Yeah. Chris Jones is the chief theater critic at the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, if you can't go to Broadway, which you can't, the next best thing is probably watching Broadway on TV. It must be nice, it must be nice to have Washington on your side. It must be nice, it must be nice. To have Washington on your side. Of course, a little snippet there from uh, Hamilton, which is coming, the film version is coming to Disney+. Plus. You saw it, you did the review yesterday in the Tribune, and I was struck by the idea and the notion that it's been tough to, to understand how you're going to replicate that moment, that spiritual moment even, when, when a whole group of people find, I don't know, solace and joy in, in a piece of art that's in front of them, yeah. and how you put that on a small screen, how you put that on a TV in a living room, how you, how you capture that magic. But but you say that this does, Hamilton. If you decide to watch this this weekend, you're watching a very close replication of, as close as you could get, replication of what the theatrical experience was like. It's the entire show. It's done in the theater. It's the original cast. It's a multi-camera shoot. There's cameras in the wings and the mezzanine and the orchestra. It's mostly shot from the front, but not entirely. They did close-up fill-ins the following day. And the takeaway, if you've seen Hamilton, as many people have, is that you haven't seen these actors up close. And so you have the ability, for example, in this an especially moving segment, uh, the uh, Dia Theodorza segment, where Leslie Odom is basically singing about his... It's really two fathers, actually, because Hamilton's there, too, singing about their children. And you can see these actors display a vulnerability that you don't really see when you saw them live in the theater. But I think that the... The event is is very, very good. It's beautifully done. It will absolutely meet all your expectations, blah, 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 highest possible technical veneer, all of that. But for me, Justin, there's a sadness to it, honestly, because it feels to me like I just watched it thinking how much I mourn gathering in person and thinking about you know, beautiful art. And and it, it sort of reminds you to some degree of what we've lost even as it even as it gives this great piece to uh, you know a broader audience, and it's certainly worth saying that people who couldn't afford a theater ticket can now afford it, uh, six ninety nine or whatever. If you cancel straight away, that's an important factor. But there's also an element to Hamilton. This is the sort of the deeper thing for me that reminds you of what America was in 2015, mm-hmm. and there's a sense of unity and hope in this piece of art that I think for people who are, say, nostalgic for the Obama administration and the moment of optimism and belief and unity, I think, and forgiveness and and sort of togetherness that may have been illusory but sort of was there in 2015, that's now gone in the face of all of our problems, well-documented as they are. And that just sort of set me off to a sad place, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe the emotion is different. Maybe there's a it, it, it evokes emotion watching Hamilton on uh, and this and the show that's obviously going to be on Disney Plus this weekend. But it, it maybe it's not the emotion that we're used to that that spiritual uplift yeah. and joy of being in the room together watching something that other human beings are doing that is spectacular and extraordinary. Maybe it's not now. It's sadness and nostalgia. 
Well, I think, too, that the, the politics of it are is that Hamilton, when you really look at it, is saying it's based on what you might call the founding mythology of America in many ways. And it's sort of saying implicitly that it belongs to everybody, that anybody can be a founding father, that what America stands for is is open to all and that equity and inclusion is at the core of what America means. Uh, and yet it still respects the idea of democracy and of a country to believe in, I think. And I think that what you see now when you look at it is you see that belief definitely, it, you know, I don't know that it's gone, but it's certainly under stress as we, you know, as we sit here right now. And and so that that is what that is what has changed. And and I think that Hamilton links it to our own mortality too, Justin. You know, the idea that in Hamilton the show sort of understands that many of us are also about the love of our children. Many of us are about, you know, trying to realize that we're not on this planet for all that long and that we have to reconcile all of our conflict, all of our desire for change with that understanding and some awareness of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm. And words like love and forgiveness and reconciliation are in such short supply at the moment that Hamilton kind of brings back that moment not very long ago when people were more able to talk about that, yeah. for good or ill. But that is just where it is. As Tony Kushner famously said, the world only spins forward, you know? <laughs> Chris Jones, uh, chief theater critic for the Chicago Tribune, and also also author of Rise Up, Broadway and American Society from Angels in America to Hamilton. We're talking about Hamilton being on Disney Plus, uh, debuting on Friday. But before I let you go, i got about a minute here. You yeah. had a great piece today about for-profit theaters. We saw Cirque du Soleil through bankruptcy protection, and the Mercury Theater here in Chicago and I.O. also closed in the last uh, week. You, you kind of pointed at Blue Man Group as another possible institution in danger. There's a real issue here as we move forward. Are you going to expect more closings of, of theaters in Chicago in months to come? Yes, in a nutshell, yes, because they, you know, especially the for-profit theaters have no revenue, and so they, and when they have no revenue, they have fixed costs like property taxes and uh, venue costs in general, and in some cases employment costs, and they are not going to be able to survive unless something happens, either in terms of state aid, possibly, or in fact, if there's, you know, if, if there's some end to this endless sort of uh, closure that we're sort of dealing with. I'm pinching myself at the moment because when, when you say Cirque du Soleil in Chicago to people, they think of 25, 30 years of those shows coming here, of them being these grand, fabulous experiences. And, you know, here, here is you and I this morning discussing how that company has gone bankrupt. And I would, if you'd said that to me a year ago, Unbelievable. I would have said that is totally inconceivable. They are one of the most powerful entertainment colossi ever. And look, here we are. They're bankrupt. It's it's kind of staggering to me. You point out in the piece just the economic factors of, of something like that. Not having Cirque come to Chicago means not uh, the restaurants, the bars, everything around. There, There's definitely a domino effect to these for-profit theaters uh, closing. Well, I think it's time that, you know, we do have to pay some attention to this, especially if you believe in a vibrant urban center. You know, we, we don't want to go back to every other Midwestern city in the mid-1980s when people emptied out of the loop at 5 o'clock and didn't come back. I mean, we're, we just don't want to go back to that situation. And I think we have to protect now, in a, you know, in a safe way and obviously over time, but we do have to be aware now of the importance of keeping our city and all of its cultural riches uh, protecting those riches and also making them more inclusive so everybody can enjoy them. 
Chief Theater Critic of the Chicago Tribune, Chris Jones, joining me today. He's also the author of Rise Up, Broadway and American Society from Angels in America to Hamilton. Chris, thanks so much for taking some time out and talk to you. Good to talk to you. It's always my pleasure, Justin. You'll be back. Soon you'll see. you remember you belong to me. You'll be back. Time will tell. you remember that I served you well. Oceans rise. Empires fall, we have seen each other through it all, and when push comes to shove, I Such a good song. And that's today's reset. We made it over the hump, so it's all downhill for the rest of the week, right? We'll see about that. I do know it's going to be pretty hot the next few days, so take precautions and drink plenty of water. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right here tomorrow. You'll be the one complaining when I am gone. And no, don't change the subject, because you're my favorite subject. My sweet, submissive subject. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.